Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us on the program today. And uh, we look forward to a really fun program today. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, we do come your way Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. And we are also uh, podcasting these programs on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and other locations. We now have a video cast on YouTube at Richard Dugan. That's the channel. Look for the guy with the hat, okay? Not hard to find. And uh, we will also be giving you our guests website so that you can continue your evolutionary process and learn more about what we'll be talking about here on the program. We also encourage you to participate in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. I want you to spend some time going within. Spend some time just taking it easy, relaxing, uh, listening to that still small voice and uh, just getting the guidance that you need and finding that peaceful place where you can rejuvenate and re-energize and, and collect yourself and, and then get back to uh, doing what it is that you love doing. Finding your life's purpose might be that first best thing that you do as far as going within. So hope that you will do that. And if this program or other programs that you listen to resonate with you and you'd like to support us and be a part of what we are doing, we'd love to have your help financially, your support. We have a PayPal account for your security as well as ours. Any amount is certainly welcome, and we will take energetic uh, healing as well, or energetic support. We'll take the healing, too, because we're always in need of uh, rejuvenating on our, uh, on our end. Our program today <clears throat> is going to be very interesting. I'm looking forward to speaking with our guest all the way from the UK. And we're going to talk about a narrative uh, that reads like a picture gallery, kings and priests, uh, along with um, knights and uh, just the whole medieval thing. But we're going to talk about other things as well that are related to that. <clears throat> My guest today, <clears throat> all the way from the UK, is Targai Tarutin, and uh, he has written a book called Hellelile and Hildebrand, and I want to welcome you and thank you so much for uh, taking time all the way, as they say, in my case, it's across the country and across the pond, all the way from UK. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. First of all, <clears throat> give us, our listeners, uh, a little synopsis of, of this wonderful book. I have to say that that period... Uh, the more medieval and and the especially uh, in England and and Europe in particular, uh, the whole medieval knights and that kind of thing has always intrigued me. So it leads me to believe that I, I must have had a past life somewhere in there. Uh, I hope I wasn't wearing the knight's uh, armor because that's heavy stuff. They didn't use lightweight materials back then. <laughs> uh, but give us a little synopsis of, of what we might find uh, in, the, in the pages of uh, Hillelisle and Hildebrand. Well, it, it's, um, it, it's based in the early 13th century, and it's based on an old Danish legend, which was called Hellelil and Hildebrand. And I changed her name to Hellelisle. But you could you could interpret interpret it that that is her name. But basically, what I did uh, the actual legend, the Danish legend, is not very long at all. And I've it's I would say it's probably a thousand words 
it that but i've enlarged it and i've embellished it and i've tried to bring in the biblical references uh, artistic references um and i've used artistic and literal license in some instances uh, i've brought in for instance references to the great paintings of the renaissance into it and also, I've even introduced the name of Tchaikovsky into it. Oh. So, but I've done it in such a way that I think it reads correctly. And I've not, there isn't in the story, there isn't any um, graphic sex, there isn't any bad language. And uh, I, I've, tried to, I've tried to do it so it reads poetically. But... It, it basically what it is, uh, the English knight Hildebrand is a prince of England, is a fictitious character. He's asked to go by a king in a in a, a far eastern country bordering on Kievan Rus to be the protector of his daughter because he will be away with his seven sons leaving leaving his territory. So he enlists he enlists 12 knights from across Europe to be her bodyguard. And these knights, I've, I've utilized history to resurrect them from, from famous points within the last 2,000 years. And they've been resurrected to be her bodyguard, but Hildebrand will be the leader of them all. And he falls in love with her and she and him, but there is an element in it that one of the stepbrothers of Helalile, he takes ex exception to all this and he tries to destroy the whole fabric, which he does do. But Helalile is resurrected because she is killed and she is resurrected. And she has a son by Hildebrand and he inherits the throne and everything is put back um, to how it should have been, and but Helalal dies, but she is resurrected in a ghostly form, and so is Hildebrand. And the story, uh, I'd like to think, um, brings home what the existence was in the early 13th century. And I've tried to make it read poetically, and I've tried to give descriptions of mountains, lakes, rivers, um, also uh, battle scenes, but I haven't overdone the battle scenes. I, I did write, drafted out a chapter, and I decided to leave it out because a lot of these stories that we see today, especially Hollywood epics, they've all got these ridiculously large battle scenes. And I didn't want to do that, so I left it out. But basically, the story going the crux of it is a romance between the leader of her bodyguard and it's a story of that romance and how it descends into tragedy but everything is put right with with um, the resurrecting of the two main characters but that is basically what the story is Do i you, hope I've, the synopsis is clear do you find uh, uh, have an affinity with that period of time? Is that something that intrigues you and, and where this story sort of uh, uh, comes from? Because obviously, the as you say, it's a Danish story, correct? 
Um, yes, it lies on the Danish legend. Yeah. Um, they, they, that obviously something was triggered in you that said, boy, this, I, I want to, I want to go there, uh, you know, in, in print, as it were, in story. Well, yes, what, um, what gave me the inspiration for the story, really, was a painting that I saw in a book, uh, in a bookshop on the Welsh borders of England and Wales, at a, a little village called Bishop's Castle. And there was a, a book there, and the painting was called The Meeting on the Turret Stair by Frederick Burton. And it's a watercolour, and it hangs in the National Library of Ireland. And you can see this on YouTube. The Irish had a, um, a poll of Irish citizens to ask which was the most popular painting in Ireland. And that particular painting came top of the list. And on YouTube, if you want to view it, uh, the curator of the museum was saying that it's so famous that young couples get engaged in front of the picture. That picture, the meeting on the turret stair, is on the front cover of my book. And it's in full colour, and it's a picture of Hellelisle being propositioned by, Hel by Hildebrand, the English knight. But if you go into YouTube and put in Hello, the meeting on the turret stair, it will come up, that picture, by Frederick Burton. And there is a YouTube uh, narrative, a little video, about how it was uh, polled. Uh, a poll was done of the Irish population, and they voted it the most popular picture in Ireland. Anyway, so I saw this picture... And it struck a chord with me because it was so unusual to see um, a romantic picture from the medieval period because most rom romantic pictures that you see today are, are in the last 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it really intrigued me. And when I researched the story, the, nothing really was written about it. There is the Danish legend, which was... Uh, which was translated into English, and it's been translated into other languages, I believe. But the actual legend, uh, oh, interestingly, Hildebrand, the English prince, is in the is in the legend, an English prince. I haven't made that up. And uh, that was what gave me the inkling to write the story. I have wrote other books, started them, uh, but they're not of that genre. So I, I'm quite open myself to write about other things. But the uh, what was interesting about the story was was how I could involve um, paintings of the Renaissance and the images that I saw in some of these pictures, how I could reinterpret what I was seeing and bring it into the book. And it worked very well, I thought. And so does some other people who have, who have given me a review on it. So I'm quite pleased about that. Because I wondered whether I was stretching people's imagination. But I also wondered as well, in this modern day and age, if people would be interested in anything of that, of that period and genre, you see. So I was, I was doubtful if people would be interested in it. But um, I've been pleasantly surprised, actually. 
does that answer the question? Sorry. It does indeed. No, no, no. And and the thing that I I, I love uh, there there is a comedian uh, here in the states uh, who <clears throat> would use what I would refer to as obscure historical uh, references. Uh, and um, I, I would say that, and then I would also add to that, and they're only obscure because I don't know about them. You've been mentioning so many different aspects of history, especially European history in this regard, that uh, many of us are not familiar with. Uh, are you sort of a student of history uh, and, and those kinds of stories? Uh, and that is what a, one of the reasons why uh, you are so intrigued by these kinds of things? Well, I, I've got many many books i i'm not i i know uh, i i use this phrase to describe myself i know a little about a lot of things but i don't know a lot about one thing uh i can go from one book to another and things will interest me of a totally different subject from one night to another for instance i've still got in my book collection my school books on physics and chemistry and occasionally i'll pick it up and start reading about chemistry what i did at school and, and it will interest me but that's i don't a lot of what i read because i'm older i i don't remember a lot of it, it, it i'll read it uh, i'll read it for my own interest but i don't remember it all I have to, if I was writing something, I'd have to get the book and go back through the pages, what I've read. It won't instantly come to me. Hmm. But as regards um, the history of Europe, um, I wanted to write about Eastern Europe because I've been to Russia two, two or three times, uh, not where the tourists go. And uh, it was an... And also, when I brought the biblical references into the book, I wanted to bring in uh, references of the Bible that's being obliterated in modern society. And I won't name mentions, but even our ecclesiastical people in England, and no doubt in other countries, they're modifying their outlook they're modifying what they want to read into the Bible to fit in with modern outlook. And I don't agree with it, but that's that's my personal opinion. And I quoted Hella Lyle in there speaking to Hildebrand. And I was I, I, I took a bit of liberty with it, but I tried to get her to prophesy how the world would be what the world would become in, in our time where we want to take what we think applies to us at the Bible, but disregard the other because it doesn't suit what we want to do. Uh, and I disagree with it, but that's me. And I wrote into this book uh, a, a little talk that Hellelar gave to Hildebrand when he was suffering from sunstroke. And uh, it's in one of the chapters, but anyway, that's that's without rambling on that's basically what gave me the interest for the book and why i wanted to write about this particular period it was an excuse to bring in um the ecclesiastical interpretations of the bible as it applied in the 13th century 
I, I did say to somebody that I kept the dialogue to a minimum in the book because I was of the opinion we don't really know how they spoke in the 13th century, 14th, 13th, 12th century. We didn't know sentence construction and how they would talk the lilt of the voice, this, this and other things. So I kept the dialogue to a minimum. Um, I hope I haven't confused you with all. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I, I find it uh, fascinating what we learn uh, about history. The, the, the plus side is at least we're able to look back, and it would be nice if we'd learn from it a little bit. Uh, the sad part is, of course, that there's a lot of history that hasn't been kept because usually in conflicts that, in this case, as you say, you've left out of uh, uh, Hillelisle and Hildebrand, um, uh, the winners write the history. They write the story. The losers don't get to do that. Um, at least that's typically what it is. Uh, and and uh, so um, it just it's it's really unfortunate. And then of course the other part of it too is that over the course of time, certain conflicts uh, generate um, <clears throat> such a disdain for the enemy's history and its art and its culture. They go in and destroy it. I mean, we've seen that in our modern day with, uh, with ISIS and the Taliban and, and uh, uh, Al-Qaeda in, in the uh, uh, Arabian countries, if you will, uh, using that as a, a very broad uh, uh, example, where they go in and not only are they trying to take over the land, but they go in and they destroy the art and they destroy the music and they destroy all of these beautiful things that we'll never be able to get back. And, and it's well, really unfortunate in that regard. Well, it, it, it's funny you should say that, because in the book, I've mentioned how, uh, without giving too much of the story away, uh, Hellelisle actually writes a manuscript with the help of some ghostly polymaths from Northumbria in England. They're, they're ghosts, and they help her draft out this lexicon that she's writing. And I've written in the at the end of the story where that is spirited away to a secret place in the Altai Mountains. And it's kept for posterity and protected by the tigers of the Caspian, which are now um, extinct. And also I've said that, I've mentioned in about chapter five, something like that, that she wears Hellelisle as a gift from admirers from distant parts. She wears a, a Roman paella or a pala about her shoulders, which is in richly um, embroidered. And I've written that that was last heard of um, in uh, one of the... In Russian imperial families who started um, uh, an embroidery school in, in Siberia. And I've written that that was last heard of there as a teaching aid to the students in this imperial Russian family's embroidery school. And I've written that was last heard of. And I've also 
also mentioned a picture that was painted of her by a Sicilian artist called Dionysius. That is fiction, I've made that up, but I hope I've done it in such a way it sounds authentic. But the picture he painted of her was made into a tapestry. And that uh, was last heard of, I've written this in the story, in the legendary library of Ivan the Terrible, Ivan Grozny. So I've tried to incorporate how man, through the turbulence of the, uh, of the centuries following this drama, all these magnificent things that are mentioned in the book get taken away and lost. And I've mentioned it in the book. Yeah. I know that there uh, were certain instances throughout history where uh, there were certain uh, people or groups who knew a battle was coming, <coughs> pardon me, and they would begin the process of gathering up, shall we call them, the treasures of that society, of that civilization, and then, as you, as you described, storing them away, you know, hiding them underground or in a cave or maybe taking them across the border into another neutral country uh, or what have you. Or I suppose in some instances they would even hide them within the walls and chambers of some of the structures that they lived in, whether it was a castle or what have you, uh, so that they could be preserved you know, and retrieved later. I wanted to read uh, something uh, from uh, from the book here. It's just a short little thing. It's right at the front of the of, of the book, having to do with this Danish story. This is translated from the Danish ballad uh, by uh, uh, Whitley Stokes back in Stokes back in 1855. It goes, "My father gave me a glorious guard. Twelve noble knights were my watch and my ward." Eleven daily served me well, but oh, I loved the last I fell. My true love's name was Hildebrand, and he was Prince of England. And that's sort of the synopsis, if you will, in sh very short order of, of the work that we're talking about today and uh, the conversation that we are having today with the author, um, uh, Tagai uh, Turutin. And it, again, is Hillelisle and Hildebrand. And uh, we encourage you to go to his website as well to, to find out more. And um, it's, it's, I think, these kinds of stories... Um, well, actually, I'm going to back that up and ask you, is there a, a, a meaning or moral that you are wanting to convey or a message that you are trying to convey through this story or is this just a story for pleasure reading? It's a story really for pleasure reading, I would say. That's, what, that, that's how I've done it. Okay. Is, it is there some kind of moral? Uh, well, there are... There, there is culture in it between a man and a woman that is being obliterated today and dispersed. And I've, I've, and I've tried to bring it back to how a man would love a woman and a woman would love a man mm -hmm. for traditional reasons. Um, and I've, I've tried to write that into the story. 
I've even wrote a part in it where there's a ballet scene. But I've tried to structure it so that it reads, it reads probably, mm -hmm. it, it, it reads, it reads, well, it could be true or it could not be true. But I, I, I wrote it in such a way that I thought a ballet could be made of this story, you see. But in it, I wrote in it that how attractive Helalal was. She was the desire of all men. They, being a princess, they couldn't act on it. Mm -hmm. But he could see it, and he he was attracted to it, and it and it confounded his chivalric uh, commitments, and 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 through it. He, he broke his chivalry commitments, and, and he caused a tragedy. But I, I won't go into too much detail. But sure, sure. I had a lot of... Uh, it took me four years to write it. And, and when I hear how authors write another book in six months, I'm amazed by it. But <laughs> the, re <laughs> the reason why I, I'd go to bed and I'd be thinking about what I wrote, and I thought, no, I'd... And I, I wouldn't sleep at all, and I'd think, no, I don't like that. And it could go over in my mind, and I'd have a, a, a notepad by my bed, and I'd write it down quick, what I think. Because if I didn't write it down, it'd be lost. I wouldn't think it again. And I also, when I walk in the countryside, because I live not far from the Welsh border, um, a, a thought, ideas would come to me, and I'd write it down uh, but I'd, I'd still, I could be on one chapter for a month and I'd keep altering it and ideas, I'd even pick up ideas in a newspaper. You, you can tell, and I think I like that. There's certain words I've used that are now extinct. They're not, they're not used, but to me, they sounded right. There's one word I've used called amain. A-M-A-I-N, and it's now an extinct word, but it's the same as in vain. I worked in vain. I tried in vain. Mm. But it, it, it describes a battle, a clash between Hildebrand and this, this, uh, this ghostly knight who is being tested before he takes on his role as protector of Princess Helalar. Mm -hmm. And spirits have raised this hyperborean knight from beyond the north wind to battle him. Yeah. And they, and they fight for hours. And I've said they toiled a main. And I thought the word was correct, you see. So I, I've used that. But it took me a long time to write it. Very long time. Yeah. Because I, Sorry, go uh, Well, I was just going to say that another uh, area that you do touch upon, because they grapple with this, the two of them, um, is is um, the phrase uh, that you you must uh, you must not um, uh, you must acknowledge your station in life. You know, there's and and another word for it is the caste system. 
where you have the royals and then you have the next level down and the next level servants and the peasants and so forth. And you don't cross those lines in these time periods uh, that we're that we talk about, whether it's the 13th or 15th or 18th centuries. That's just the way it was, in spite of the fact that people uh, from different castes or stations fell in love. Uh, I mean, and, and a matter of fact, the most modern uh, would be, if I can remember the, 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 the king's name, who abdicated the throne in England. Oh, for, Edward VIII. Uh, yeah, for the love of a woman. Said, hey, if I can't have this woman as my wife and be with her, then I'll give up the crown so that I can. And um, that's what this kind of speaks to also, is that love will, so to speak, overcome any obstacle if you really want it. Yeah, well, uh, also, <laughs> what I like about the, that period is there was terrible poverty, and I, I would imagine... Um, lifespan would be 40 years would be a good lifespan uh i haven't dwelt on that in the book but mm -hmm. now you've brought it up but um uh people would laugh still the same they'd still laugh at the same jokes they they'd still have no sadness they'd no happiness but the one thing about the middle ages if things went wrong they wouldn't blame an outside agency because it, it was an agricultural society. So if things went wrong, it would be the elements. God <laughs> God would have caused it to go wrong. Yeah. So that accepted. Today, we blame everything else. Um, we, we blame our superiors if things go wrong. And the other thing I like about uh, those periods is that we had reference points in society. You had a, you had a king, you had a peasant. You had a tall tree, you had a short tree, you had high mountains, you had low mountains, you had a large ocean, a small ocean, you had reference points. Today, we're trying to get rid of reference points. Nobody should have advantage over another. Well, that's a concept that's never found in nature. This concept yeah. that no man should have an advantage over another. It's not a concept found in nature. How we'll come to terms with it, I don't know. But it's going on now. It, this is me talking now, not in the book. But mm -hmm. it's going on now that um, uh, we must obliterate all reference points. It, it's not a conscious thing, but that's what they're doing. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and you'll never do it. You've got to have reference points. And, uh, I mean, uh, what's his name? Musk. He's been... Uh, oh. Elon He's Musk. One of the world's richest people with Amazon. Yeah. Well, it doesn't bother me. I, but this is me. I haven't got a lot of money. It doesn't bother me. Why people get worked up about these things, I don't know. Because wealth really isn't what brings us happiness. I, I don't think. I, no. I, I think it's, it's if you've got your health, you've got everything. Yeah. That's what I. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Uh, I myself, over the last few years since I've lived here in Santa Barbara, <clears throat> I've had to deal with uh, a, a couple of health concerns that 
that uh, are, are not of any consequence to me because I view them as temporary. They're not, I, you know, I'm, I'm 60, and um, I am going to live to be 100. Uh, it's a commitment that I made, not so much to my great-grandmother who lived to be 100, but it was more I was telling everybody else that I've got to outlive this woman because, you know, uh, and she's making it really hard. And that was when she was 95, and every time I would see her, every reunion, I would say, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm going to outlive this woman. I don't know why. I picked her and the fact that she was going to, she went to 100 it was just one of those things so I've got another lifetime to go and I'm sitting here thinking we we all are part of a class system of stations if you will I actually like the phrase or the word station better than class system um, we are all part of that whether we like it or not uh, I am the eldest male child of my parents, of my parents, uh, but I'm not the eldest sibling. I have two sisters older than me, uh, so uh, you know there's a part of me that doesn't feel the level of, say, responsibility uh, over the uh, the youngers, you know. And of course, I became very independent as a kid and as as a teenager growing up. Uh, and, and that's just the way that it was. So there is a certain truth to what you say that we, we can't get rid of it. And at the same time, I'm thinking, well, yeah, but we're supposed to be, so to speak, at the top of the food chain, as, as the phrase goes. And you would think that, you know, we've got these incredible brains and that we would be able to work this stuff out. But the reality is that um, you have to have as you said before, you've got to have these uh, demarcation points, if you will, uh, because each one of us, th- there's, there is a hierarchy, whether we like it or not. It just, it just is. It's just part of, of the way things are, uh, because if you want a successful society, you've got to have people at the top who uh, are, are hopefully going to, maybe this is utopian in thought, are hopefully going to be concerned about the welfare of all, and so the decisions they make will reflect that. You know, that's what we hope. Uh, and yeah. this, I think, is one of the reasons why people want to do away with those borders, so to speak, with those demarcations, those the, the hierarchy, because we've seen through history that these people who are in positions of power don't seem to care about you and me, the, the peasants, if you will, of our day. Mm-hmm. But well, when the Chinese um, communists came to power in 1949, they got rid of, I believe I'm right in this, they got rid of uh, army ranks in the armed forces. They got rid of it. Hmm. But they had to bring it back, but it didn't work. Yeah. Uh, it, it, by the way, it's one of the things that I find fascinating in this country. Everybody screams bloody murder if you use the word socialism. You know, nobody likes socialism. And I'm sitting here going, yeah, but, you know, from my perspective, of course, they talk about it from an economic standpoint. But from my perspective, the military is socialist. You don't have democracies in a military. You can't. Because if you go to war and every guy wants to do his own thing, you're not going to win. You have to no, have a unified. You have to have a unified group, right? And and there's got to be a leader. Exactly. There's got to be somebody giving the orders. Somebody taking it. It never changes. It never changes. Exactly. So no, no. so even in peacetime, you still need 
a, a, a body of individuals that are going to, again, hopefully they are going to work towards the common good. Now, you're there in the U.K., uh, is is the form uh, is is the society there? Because I I've not studied that much of it. I know, uh, as I said before, I love the the medieval period and the royal period, you know, of the kings and and Britain, you know, and it's going around the world, taking you know, uh, uh, going to different lands and and uh, making them part of the uh, the empire, as it were, or the realm. Uh, but what is the what is is the system there a democratic system currently today? Oh, oh, yeah, it, it, definitely. Um, I'm a strong royalist. I always have been. Mm -hmm. And if they think I'm going to swear my allegiance to a politician, they've got another thing coming. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, um, I shouldn't get into politics, really, but because everybody's... I've learned, by the way, writing this book, one thing I've learned... I've written other things, mm -hmm. but... One thing I've learned is, especially as I've got older as well, is that when you're growing up, you think everybody else thinks like you, but they don't. People uh, in the village where I live, uh, I would doubt if anybody thinks the same. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got a different outlook on life. Uh, and... Uh, and and if you extrapolate that over the population, say, of England, which is uh, of Britain, which is 65 million, and then you extrapolate it over Europe and then the world, 7 billion people, those 7 billion people, every minute of every day, trillions of thoughts are going through their brains, and they're all different. And over the years, the decades, the centuries, uh, you get you'll get different movements coming, uh, different political systems. Empires will come and go. Uh, the United States will break up. Britain will break up. Europe will break up. Russia, well, I'm sure that will break up, and uh, only because it's the progress of time and the multitudinous events of people thinking all these thoughts, because they're all thinking differently. Mm -hmm. I bet people, if they hear me talking, I bet there's good proportion think I'm talking rubbish, um, and then some who might agree. I don't know. <laughs> well, but all we have to do is take a look back at history. History tells us that it's it's in a manner of speaking, it's sort of, as far as humans are concerned, it's sort of the natural order of things, that no no civilization, no government. No uh, dictatorship, no religious order, etc., etc., lasts forever. It just doesn't. It just it there's now, now. there's a rise and our, a fall. Yeah, one of our politicians, uh, I, I remember him, Harold Macmillan. He was one of our uh, prime ministers in the 1960s, mm -hmm. and I remember him saying that bureaucracies, as they became bigger and bigger, were like pouring salt from a salt cellar on a tablecloth. If you keep pouring it, a heap will grow, and then it will collapse, and then it will grow again, and then collapse again. It becomes unstable once it reaches a certain point, and will collapse back, and then it will rise again. And, and he likened human society like that. 
I think that's a great analogy. And, uh, you know, there was a gentleman um, back in the, I can't remember if it was the, I think it was the 80s. Uh, and I was living in Arizona at the time, and uh, uh, this one particular gentleman who was running for uh, governor, he made the comment that uh, uh, no civilization has really lasted for, and this was an average number, for more than 400 years. Uh, but the United States is going to be different. And I'm sitting here going, what makes you think that? We're human beings just like those civilizations that only lasted 400 years. And we're about, uh, what is it, a little over halfway there. And and some people don't even think we're going to make it to 300, let alone 250, um, just because of the way things are today. But things change. Uh, people change. But let me ask you this. In, in regards to the village in which you live and the diversity of thought and beliefs and opinions that the people in the village have, isn't there a consensus that you want the village, that all of you want the village to continue to move forward, maybe to progress, maybe to expand, maybe not to expand? Um, uh, but isn't there a, a sort of a, a, a looking after the, the, the common good and the general welfare of the village and its people by its people? Well, it's a little village. The church goes back to um, the eleventh, the eleventh century. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, the twelfth century. Uh, I would say ninety-nine percent of the people are are married. Seventy percent are elderly. It, it, it's it's quite a well-to-do village. It, it's a nice village. I'm. Uh, I've been single uh, many, many years. I've been divorced many, many years. And I, uh, th- there's a village hall where the, where the residents, they um, coagulate there on a Friday. They have uh, different events, what have you. But I don't get involved with it. Uh, being single, I wouldn't have a lot in common with the general conversation because they'd be talking about the grandchildren and things like that, which is normal. Yeah. Whereas I wouldn't, you see. But as regards, people in England like to preserve the history. They like to be progressive, mm-hmm. but um, in, in, in uh, word only, the progressive word, but actions is a different matter. Yeah. Um, if they can be progressive, but but retain our culture, that's fine. But I don't know whether that applies to all over the world, but that's what I feel in England, that we're great being progressive as long as we can preserve the culture. Hmm. We don't get rid of it. I think China has lost an awful lot with the Cultural Revolution under Mao Zedong. They've destroyed a lot of history. Uh, and also, when Lenin came to power, the Bolsheviks, they lost an awful lot of imperial history of Russia. But anyway, that, that that's me. That's what I think. Everybody thinks differently, of course. Yeah, know? absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in terms of um, thinking differently, do you feel that it is important for us uh, as individuals to expose ourselves to 
uh, as many of the different cultures as there are and even as were used to exist in terms of looking at history uh, so as to maybe have a better, well-rounded perspective. Uh, Because I I know today, I don't know if this is true in England, uh, but I know it is true in the United States. And right now, We've got we, we are polarized. We've got two ends of, of the same stick, so to speak. Um, and nobody wants to listen to the other person. We used to have in in broadcasting, we used to have what was called a fairness doctrine that required broadcasters to talk about an issue from both sides. If there were two sides, then you had to talk about both sides. Uh, and that was d- done away with in the 19, early 1980s. And that's the reason why we have what are referred to as echo chambers. And people are only listening to those echo chambers that echo back to them what they already believe. So there is really no learning, no growth, no expansion, no education as far as other well, perspectives. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I I was thinking, funny enough, about the U.S. Uh, When I've been reading a book, I'll lie in bed, I'll lie there for about half an hour before I go to sleep, and I'll be digesting what I've read. But for some reason, I was thinking about the United States. I think I was watching this, your election, Trump and Biden, and I came to the conclusion, rightly or wrongly, that... One of the problems with the United States is that it's a, it's a modern entity. It's got no cultural roots going back to, into antiquity. You've got a disparate uh, population thrown together, and it, it's, a new, it's a new country. Mm-hmm. And it could take centuries before it settles down into a, a cultural pattern, as I call it. Whereas if you think about it, most countries of the world, uh, their borders, although they move about, especially in Europe, you know, they'll move about, but not very far. But their cultural roots go back centuries. And the United States doesn't, it's new. Now, Canada is relatively stable because its population is very small in relation to its geographical area whereas yours isn't in America. It's, it's all over the United States. But there isn't, there isn't a cultural, um, uh, a stable cultural history. Do you understand? It, it's yes. New. Sorry, no, 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 no. Absolutely. No, I understand completely. And, and what's interesting... that's true or not, I don't know. Yeah. And what's interesting, uh, as you described that, is that some would say, well, yes, but our culture is the diversity of cultures that immigrants brought to this country. And, uh, and then, of course, as we've gone on through time to the present, people are now accusing others, whoever the others are, of destroying their culture. We can't, you know, we, we're losing our culture. It's like, well, what culture are you losing? Because it's not up to somebody else to preserve your heritage and your culture uh, from whence your ancestors came, whether it be Europe or Africa or Asia. You know, uh, that's not up to somebody else. That's up to you. 
And if 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 you're going to play the victim and play the blame game, uh, then you're sadly mistaken. That that you're. I think, and again, this is my opinion, my observation, that it is not somebody else's responsibility to preserve your culture. It's yours. If let's say somebody did come from China and they live in a a community, uh, maybe they call it Chinatown or Little Italy, as as a lot of places here in the states uh, in different big cities, they'll have different areas of a city yeah. that have a particular group from a particular part of the world, and that culture is preserved in that community. Uh, it's not to say that they they stay isolated and secluded, but they they preserve their culture in that village, if you will, that community. Um, so I, I think that there's some truth to what you are saying, absolutely, that we don't have, let's say, a, um, a defined culture, let's say, as Britain does, or Ireland, or France, uh, or many of the African countries, which I, I'm not even going to try to name, or India, or Pakistan, uh, or the various, I guess, I, I guess overall China would have a general culture, but then you have all of the provinces that probably have their own uh, uh, take on the general Chinese culture. And then, of course, all of the other countries around the world. So I I think you're right about that. and, And I think that it's something that we need to take a look at that I think is even more important than the reasons why we're polarized. Um, You know, we're all here together. Whether it's on a global scale or on a national scale, uh, I've often said this, uh, uh, that uh, if the good Lord had intended for each one of us to live on separate planets, I'm sure that there are enough habitable planets in the universe that you would be on one planet and I would be on another. But the reality is we're all here together. And that says to me, that we sh- we're, we're supposed to be working together, not trying well, to kill each other. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you hear this word, politicians come out with it, peace. Mm-hmm. Everybody comes out with this word, peace. Now, I, I'm not trying to be <laughs> controversial here. But no, no, no. I, you, you, know all, you know all the wars that have occurred in the world. Right. In the last three, four thousand years, mm-hmm. if they hadn't occurred, what would we be reading about? Um, if mm. we were at continual peace, it would be a boring world, wouldn't it? I think it would. My father once said, "If everybody was the same, what a boring world it would be." This is now, true. I don't know what the answer is, but all these books we read, uh, these the, the Renaissance art. Most of it, when you look at it, it's some the element of the picture, it's some form of conflict in it. If you didn't have it, what were I'm just posing the question, what would we be reading about? Because I can't believe we'd all be hand in hand dancing around the mulberry tree happy. <laughs> Can you? Because I just I think it'd be a boring world. I think you're right. What the answer is, I don't know. I mean, China, without with what 1.4 billion, uh, I can see when communism releases its grip, I don't think China will stay as it is. Mm. All those different people thinking the way 1.4 billion, 
I, I, I don't think people stay together. Yeah. My guest is uh, my guest is Tagai Tarutan. He has written a book called Hillelisle and Hildebrand. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I certainly have uh, I have my copy here. <laughs> so I hope that you'll pick up your copy as well. Uh, I think it'll be a, a fun read. Uh, again, as, as we discussed earlier, it's, it's uh, not filled with historical facts. It's based upon, uh, as you said, a Danish uh, a ballad or Danish myth or, or story, I guess I should say. Uh, and I find interesting, too, uh, and we could touch on this real quickly here, um, your perspective on, <clears throat> let's say, would you consider this to be part of the European mythology? Yes. Yeah. And I know that it has been said, and I've repeated this phrase many times, that even though it might be mythology, I would venture there's probably certain elements of truth or fact within the myth. I would like to think so. Yeah. So what's on the table next for uh, Tagai? Well, I'll give you a hint. There's two stories that I've been playing with. I've, I've drafted out certain uh, chapters, elements. One is to explain, but in a novel form, the disappearance of the horse from North America because it occurred in the past and there wasn't a firm explanation for it. Mm. And I've got the idea of writing a novel to explain that it's going to occur again. The horse will disappear from North America. And I, and this is an idea that's going through my mind. Yeah. The other one is a, is a, a description of Hellelisle, but through the eyes of her lady-in-waiting, Runa. Because I originally wanted to write this book so Hella Lyle herself would not speak. Her words would be reported speech. And if ever a film was made of this story, I would love to see that Hella Lyle's face is never shown. Well, you see everybody else's, but you don't see Hella Lyle's face. Mm -hmm. And her speech is reported. But... Uh, those, those are the two stories I've got in mind. One to explain the disappearance of the horse from North America. It'll occur again. And the other one is this story of Hellelong seen through the eyes of her lady-in-waiting. But that's the idea I've got. Well, wonderful. We'll look forward to that as well. I want to let our listeners know that the website you want to go to as far as the book is concerned, and I'm not even going to take the time to spell it out. You can certainly Google it. I'm sure it'll come up. Uh, Hellelisle and Hildebrand.com is the website so that you can uh, order a copy. I'm sure it's available on Amazon as well, and uh, we encourage you to do that. Uh, I want to ask you before we wrap up here, and I'm, we're running out of time here, but I wanted to ask you your name. You're, you're English, right? Yes. Where does your name come from? Targoi Tarutin, it's an amalgam of ancient Slavic names. I have to say that uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I was rather intrigued, but also a little befuddled going, oh boy, this is going to be one I've really got to work on, because I have to tell you that I, 
I really work on trying to pronounce my guests' names as well as people that I meet correctly. Yeah. It is their name. And let's show them the respect that they deserve by getting their name correctly. I, I actually have to say that uh, the people on Ellis Island back at the turn of the 19th to the 20th centuries showed very little respect to the immigrants that were coming over because if they couldn't pronounce their name, they'd change it. You know, right. well, and, and Targa, it's a routine. Uh, I haven't had anybody struggle with that. Well, good. I got it yeah. right. <laughs> Yes, just one thing. In in the book, uh, Hella Lyle speaks two, in two different places in the book. She speaks uh, a sentence of old High German. Hmm. I have to research this to get it right, and I hope it is right. But if anybody who's a modern German speaker, she they might think it's wrong. But it's she speaks the old High German to one of the heroes in the story, Carl von Altenberg, the Teutonic Knight, who's had half his face removed with oh. a sword blow. Ouch. But she speaks to him in high German. Mm. Uh, and one is a very emotional moment in the story. Well, well, she's dying and she speaks to him. Well, we will look forward to that. And I also mm. applaud you for your efforts to raise the bar when it comes to language. Because to me, that is has been over the last and I'm I like I said before, I'm 60 years of age and I have seen the deterioration in this country of the English language. I don't recall what the number of words that were in our vocabulary was, say, 100 or 200 years ago. But I know it was a lot more than it is today. And uh, and and so again, I, I applaud you for that, and uh, and and we will we will do our part and continue. That's one of the reasons I got into this business was to help raise that bar in particular, uh, because uh, it it just gets lower and lower and lower, um, and and it gets very frustrating. And there are I listen to Shakespeare. Now I don't know what all of the words mean, but if I listen hard enough, I can gather what they mean by the context of the words that are around it that I do understand. And, of course, it wouldn't hurt to have a dictionary at hand, <laughs> if necessary, to look them up. Uh, but I think it's just really important for people to really expose themselves to so many different perspectives, cultures, ideas. Um, that just makes it just makes. And again, I'm not trying to make everybody the same by far. I want people to be unique and different. Uh, but I think that by, we can do that still by having a better understanding of the differences that make us a, a, a great people. Well, I've, I've sent um, three or four copies of this book to people I know in Russia and one family in Siberia. But I have warned them that unless they're very fluent in English, there's a lot of it they won't understand. Mm. Because yeah. I've tried to preserve the English language and bring back, as I've said before, yeah. uh, words that are missing out of everyday expressions today. Right. But a lot of it's through the Internet. But anyway, sorry to all of you. Absolutely. Well, Tagai Tarutin, 
author of Hillelisle and Hildebrand. I want to thank you so much for giving us so much time on the program, uh, sharing with us, taking time out of your uh, afternoon there in the UK as we converse. Uh, I do have three final questions for you, but again, I really do appreciate uh, your sharing with us today. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, before I ask you those questions, uh, they're very quick, very easy, I think. But uh, nonetheless, I want to let our listeners know that uh, this program is heard Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. And Mondays at 1 a.m., that's Pacific time. And uh, we are also uh, at richarddugan.com streaming the program live at those times with the podcasts at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and many other locations that you are reposting our uh, podcast. Too. We're also on YouTube where you can watch the interviews, and I hope they're entertaining as well. I think it's great when you can see the person who we're talking with, and I get to see them too, uh, because we can't meet in person just yet. We're getting there. Uh, but um, certainly uh, go to YouTube. Richard Dugan is the website. Just look for the guy with the hat. Also, a reminder that uh, we have PayPal account for your security as well as ours, so that if you would like to help us out financially, we would greatly appreciate that. And please take time to participate in the decade of the 2020s, which is the decade of perfect vision. Go within, spend some time in that peaceful, quiet, still, calm place. Uh, contemplating whatever it is that comes to mind. Listen to the still small voice that will guide you, that will inspire you, that will encourage you uh, and give you the information that only you need, that, that will help you through your uh, days and weeks and months and years. All right, for my three final questions that I do ask my guests, and I've prob- you may have answered these questions uh, in the context of our interview, but I like to ask them pointedly. And the first of the three is, who is Tagai Turutin? Uh, an Englishman. 73 years of age, lives in Ashford Carbonell near Ludlow in Shropshire, not far from the Welsh border. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? Uh, well, I wrote this story for my own interest. Uh, I didn't really write it to make money. If people want to buy it, well, uh, good luck to them. But I, I really was encouraged to tell it as a book and promote it. But um, really, I've written, I wrote it for myself. And I, occasionally I'll pick it up and read it myself. Mm. But that's that's all really is the reason I wrote it. Also, I, I, I try to put in it certain biblical sayings that are in the Bible that I think are applicable today and should not be forgotten. Hmm. And final question is, what is your life's purpose? Um. Well, uh, it's a very good, interesting question that. Um, I could only answer it really by by saying um, this this statement, uh, and it's a mantra in in human society is that birth is a blessing, death is a curse, but you can't have one without the other. Um, basically, I, I I'm just one of seven billion people. There's nothing special about me. Um, that's all I can say, really. 
Well, I am hoping that when people read your book, uh, Hill of Lyle and Hildebrand, uh, they will think otherwise. Uh, that uh, you are a special person because you brought this story to life for them that they didn't even know existed, but they do now. This Danish uh, myth or story is uh, brought to life in this book, and we encourage you to go to the website, uh, Hillelisle and Hildebrand.com. Uh, Tagai, thank you so much for joining us, Tagai Tarutan, and uh, we look forward to talking with you again when you have your next release. Been a pleasure talking to you. You bet. And I'm Richard Dugan. I thank you for listening and watching. Tell me your story, new paradigms for a new world. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast podcast, love to Lao.